just bow our heads for a moment. And I just want to ask you there with God, can we just repent as individuals and as a church of anything in our lives, of any time that we make worship about anything other than Jesus? And God, it's with open hearts and open hands that we want you to open our eyes to align our hearts with you, the heart of this church with you, that through all the distractions, the busyness, the chaos of the world, that Jesus will be the focus of our lives, our attention, our devotion, that it will always be all about you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and in the name of Jesus, we declare. And the whole church said, amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Kip and the team. I was a part of a church camp a few years ago down close to San Antonio, and they'd asked me to come in and speak, and there was one day that they decided to call the entire camp. We're talking about a few hundred middle schoolers and high schoolers. They called them to silence. So the way they did it is they had a morning worship experience, and they said, for the rest of this day, you cannot say a word. And if you do, there's punishment. And the punishment wasn't that they took all the kids who talked and they put them in a room where they no longer had to be quiet and they could just hang out. It was like solitary confinement. It was crazy. So they went, they went to Bible classes, but no one spoke. They would just read the Bible. They had a piece of paper telling them what to do. They went to lunch, but no one could talk. After lunch, they had all these afternoon activities. They're even playing sports and things, but no one could talk. Through dinner, no one could talk. And it worked. And then they came together for the evening worship service, and they, they came into a room where usually there was music playing as they came in, and there were different games they would play to kind of wake everybody up, and then they came in a room, but it was still complete silence, but things on the screen telling them what to do and, and how to approach God and, and ways to pray and questions to make them reflect. And then the first song they sang after over 10 hours of complete silence was the song, Shout to the Lord, All the Earth Let Us Sing. And you could just feel the emotion in the room. And what they were doing at that camp is they were just saying, hey, we've just lost this idea of the mystery of God and the power of God. And, and here's something we want to try to do at this camp to reclaim it. And it worked. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 58. This is where we're going to be today. I'm going to walk you through this whole chapter. It's 14 verses. Isaiah 58 verse 2 through 4 is this. For day after day, this is God talking. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager, eager for God to come near them. And here's the people's response in verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. And you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. That it is possible to do the right things for God and not have a heart that craves God. It's possible to do all like the practices of worship in a worship service right. Yet not to have the stirring in your heart for God. It's possible for you to know book, chapter, and verse. Yet not to have a heart that is aligned with God's intentions and what he wants for us. 
Uh, let me, just for a moment, Isaiah 58, part of what these people were struggling with is there were Canaanite practices. So you had foreign nations who were honoring and worshiped their foreign gods. And a lot of them, what they did when it came to worship and sacrifice is that they would try to pressure their gods to respond to their requests. So they would worship with all their heart and with all their energies and they're sacrificing things. And it's all to try to pressure the gods to help them win a battle or to help their land be fruitful or to help them succeed. So pressure their gods. So this had crept into the people of God too. The worship wasn't about coming before God to worship or to fast or to sacrifice because we love God and we want to know God better. It's just, hey, we need to pour our heart and tension and energy into this so that hopefully God will respond to some of our requests too. My boys just finished third and fifth grade. About six to eight weeks into the school year, I went to pick them up one day, and one of their teachers came up to me, and she said, I've just got to tell you, one of your boys, he's played me for about a month. She said almost every day, or every day, he comes up to me, and he gives me these side hugs, and he tells me that I'm beautiful, and I'm one of the nicest teachers he's ever had, and he's so kind. And then I realized today, he's doing that just to get out of work, and it's been working for a month, but it's not going to work anymore. He's been charming me. He's been playing me. And I said, I'm, you know, we laughed together, and then, I mean, I was left with nothing else to say, but, you know, I mean, he, he gets that from his mother, and, and it's just... <laughs> It, it runs in her family. That's just what they do, all right? But I'm sure all of us had had times when, if we really thought about it, when it comes to worship and how we come together and the sacrifices we offer to God, it is more about building our kingdom than it is about building God's kingdom. It's more, can I worship in a way and make God think that I'm so in love with God so that God will answer some of my requests and make my life better and maybe the promotions will come with it instead of, hey, I am here and my focus is I want to know God better and live within God's will. Their worship wasn't producing spiritual fruit. It wasn't producing spiritual results. And God can see straight through unhealthy motives and intentions. And Isaiah 58, even in the subtitles of some of your Bibles, it's about true fasting. It's, a, it's about fasting. It's about worship. It's about sacrifice. But it's like when you fast, here, this is what it should look like. And I'm not going to make this whole sermon about fasting. Maybe the day needs to come when I'll, I'll talk more about fasting. It is something that, it's a command that shows up over 70 times in the Bible. Fasting is something Jesus just assumes will be done. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. When you give, give like this. When you fast, fast like this. I mean, Jesus just assumes it's something that will be done. But it's hard for any of us to fast when we're living in a time and in a place that is addicted to food, right? It's not until I fast, I realize how many times I eat throughout the day. Not just, not just breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but all the snacks. And times I put my hand into a chip basket or you know, bag when I'm walking through the kitchen. But fasting is the denial of self so that we can know God better. Uh, years ago, I, I didn't fast for the first time until I was probably 19 years old, and then it became a fairly regular practice in my life. Casey and I got married at 21. My sister was two years older than I was. She was married at 19. Jenny had a baby at 21. Jenny, when they had Malaya, her and her husband David at the time, they were not trying to have a baby. She was a surprise baby. But Jenny had this dream and vision for her life of not just having a kid, but having a bunch of kids. Jenny, she would have had a dozen children if God would have blessed her with them. So after Malaya, they kept trying and kept trying. And then she struggled for years until the day she died with infertility. And a lot of the times questioning, why would God not bless her with more children? Yet not, not that Malaya wasn't enough. Malaya was enough. She just had such a great time with Malaya. She wanted more of that. 
So there was a time our family spent a year where we committed and, I mean, we laid hands on Jenny. We prayed over Jenny. And I think I was 23. Casey and I had been married a year or two. I remember sitting out in our driveway as a family, and I said, here's what we need to do. Can we all commit to fasting one day a week for this entire year that God would have mercy on Jenny's womb and give her another baby? So we committed to fasting for an entire year. And I decided that what I was going to do wasn't just fast one day a week for a year. I was going to give up my favorite drink at the time. And this would be a fast every day. At the time, Dr. Pepper and I were super close. It was the second love of my life. And I would drink multiple Dr. Peppers every single day. This was the drink back in Exodus in the land flowing milk and honey. It will be in the new heavens and the new earth, all right? And I decided I was going to make this commitment in this fast before God, that God, I am not going to drink another Dr. Pepper until Jenny has another baby or Jenny is fully at peace with, with her state of who she is with you. And I thought that God would be so impressed by our commitment that he would do something fairly quickly. And I don't think I would articulate it that way, but in my heart it was like, man, God's going to be so impressed by our fasting and by what we're giving up and by me not drinking the Dr. Pepper, which went on for nine years. The day she died was the first time I had a Dr. Pepper in about nine years. That God would be impressed with this. What we learn in worship and fasting and in sacrifice is this isn't like what the foreign people used to do to the foreign gods of, hey, let's worship and sacrifice in a way where we pressure the gods to action, but we worship and sacrifice in a way where our hearts are stirred because we want to know God better. We're in a series right now that I've called Heart and Hands. There are three places in Isaiah, three main places in Isaiah where it talks about the need for worship and the need for service. And that you can't worship God yet not be people who are committed to service. And you can't go engage in a bunch of service yet not have a heart that wants to be rooted in God. So Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 6. And today I want to unpack Isaiah 58 for us. And this is something I pray through and think through a lot because uh, I I have a chance where I get to meet with a lot of church leaders and pastors and people in churches of Christ and outside churches of Christ all over our city. And I get to sit in these lunches and these meetings with people, hearing all about church. And and here's something I've realized. Many churches throughout Memphis, and I I don't want to say all churches, but many churches in Memphis and beyond, many of the churches that are really good at evangelism are really, really bad at justice and compassion. And there are some churches who are really, really good at justice and compassion, yet they're really, really bad at evangelism. And there are churches who focus all their time and energy and even a lot of the money in their budgets on worship experiences throughout a weekend. So they're vibrant, but they're really, really bad at connecting to a community. And there are churches who can be really good at connecting to a community, but they're not really good at calling people to the heart of God. And when it comes to being people of God and when it comes to being a church like Sycamore View, we can't like just choose one over the other or we're going to let the pendulum swing and then jump off on this side because we feel a connection with God here or we're going to swing over here and then jump off because we feel a connection with God here. Worship and service have to come together within the rhythm of a person's life, a follower of Jesus within a rhythm of a church. Richard Rohr once said, that it's easier to worship Jesus than it is to follow Jesus. And I think he's right. That it's possible, and many of us know this, to be a part of a church where you do Bible class on Sunday morning, church on Sunday morning, church on Sunday night, church on Wednesday night, and other, involved in other Bible studies, yet you don't even know the names of your, of your neighbors, and you don't know their condition with God, 
yet we think we're living in alignment with God's heart because of how connected we are to a church. And we're also living in a time where there are more and more people feeling like, well, real worship is that you commit your life to service, but there's not a commitment to a local church or to praying with the saints. And we need both. Isaiah 58, or uh, Mother Teresa, I was reading a book by Mary uh, Albert Darling. She wrote a book talking about the need for prayer and justice to come together. She was reflecting on Mother Teresa, and she said this. She used to teach people that to work for the poor, they must develop a consistent prayer life. She believed that people could work for justice possibly for a year or two, but to willingly sustain that kind of difficult work day after day, year after year, in a spirit of joy was not possible without the help from God that came through a consistent prayer life. Walter Wink once said, unprotected by prayer, our social activism, and I think we could substitute compassion, justice, service in that place, runs the danger of becoming self-justifying good works. As our inner resources atrophy, the wells of love run dry, and we are slowly changed into the likeness of the beast. And this is what God's talking about in Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58, verse 5, it says this. This is God. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? It's like God is saying, hey, there's so much more I want from your worship time and your fasting than what you're giving. That God wants to see the kind of devotion that you give to communion with the bread and the cup. He wants to see that kind of devotion lived out in the way you treat people on Thursday afternoon and Tuesday morning. And as you go throughout your week, that there's consistent devotion to God in every place of your life. In Isaiah 58, verse 6 and 7, most people who've read Isaiah 58, this is what they remember. This is what's recited. It echoes many other prophets. And it's like this. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen for you? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now, if you look at the screen, the way some people talk about this, or if you look in your Bible, verse 6 is like long-term. We're talking about systematic injustice, structural, cultural kind of stuff. Verse 7 is about immediate needs. Like These are things that happen every single day where there's a need, there's a person on a street corner, you're aware of someone who's in need, and you need to do something about it. Now, when, I've, when I'm in settings or I'm with, in lunches with specifically with black church leaders throughout the city, they help teach me about verse 6 more than almost any other group I'm with. Because in a lot of black churches throughout our city and beyond, there's not just a call to immediate need. There's a call to try to understand the structures and the history and the things that may still hold people down, whatever walk of life you may be in. The neighborhood that we currently live in, Binghampton, we've been down there for eight years, has taught me more about some of the items I think expressed in verse 6 than almost any book I've ever read. I live off Sam Cooper. There's a street that you turn on to get into my neighborhood, and it's over a quarter of a mile, maybe a third of a mile, and it's a straight shot. And there are people who fly down this street. I mean, like Lightning McQueen flying down this street. So I went to some of my neighbors when we first moved into this part of the neighborhood, and I said, well, hey, let's start a petition. 
Let's take it to the people who govern our community, and let's set up some speed bumps. And many of my neighbors kind of sarcastically laughed at me, saying, Josh, we've tried it for decades, but we've been told we're not a neighborhood of priority. Now, either they verbally were told they were not a neighborhood of priority, or by the way, petitions were ignored. They were just left to understand. There was just understanding. It was just implied. This isn't a neighborhood of priority. So there are no speed bumps. I've had conversations with many of my neighbors, and many of my neighbors have good relationships and a lot of respect for police officers. But almost every single neighbor I talk to has also had a negative experience with a police officer. And all it takes is for a couple police officers to give negative experiences for there to be a lack of trust in the entire system. So when you see verse 6, it talks about fasting that God has chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords and set the oppressed free. We're not just talking about the sinful nature. Sometimes we spiritualize a lot of the Bible. There is a sinful nature in this, but God's addressing that God is calling God's people to be a voice for the voiceless and to care for the orphans and the widows. This is what the people of God are, are called to do. And anything that holds them down, we need to try to educate ourselves on it so we can speak something into it but when it comes to verse 7 and like these immediate needs i can't think of anyone who has taught me more about this than people in this church i was a part of a group a few years ago that in this church a group of men who met to to pray every week and as we prayed there was there was fasting that was involved in this group of men were committed to prayer and fasting, and they were reading Isaiah 58, and, and they just thought, I mean, reading Isaiah 58, that we can't just pray and fast and not do something about it. So what they committed to was every day that they fasted, they would go by Sonic, and they would buy a bunch of breakfast burritos, and they would take them to the hungry all over the city, whether it was street corners or going down to Court Square in downtown, where they would sit and hand out burritos and have conversations with people about faith and life. When it comes to worship and sacrifice and fasting in these ways that connect to God, if you wrestle with the question of who benefits from worship and the answer is you, the answer is wrong. Because who benefits from worship should never just be me that I need to be filled up and the preacher needs to preach something that's uh, you know, applicable to my life. It's that who benefits is the world. Because worship and sacrifices that are described in Isaiah 58, it's not just for the people of God to escape the world, to do things like quietly and secret. It's to prepare us and to equip us to go out and be the people of God for the world. John Wesley, who lived a couple of hundred years ago, um, one of the greatest evangelists we've ever had. And, and John Wesley taught and believed that spiritual liberation should lead people to be involved in social liberation. That how you have been liberated and freed by God prepares you to help others experience the same thing. There's one author, last name was Dorr. He is a D-O-R-R. -R. And he was a theologian, a philosopher. He wrote a lot about prayer and he wrote a lot about justice. And he talks about there are three conversions in the life of a believer. The first conversion is a personal conversion. That every believer has a responsibility before God to repent and to confess and to be baptized and, and to make their own decisions of faith. No one else can make these faith decisions for you. There's a personal conversion. There's also interpersonal conversion. 
And he described this as any believer who enters into a covenant with God has a responsibility to love a neighbor, that you treat your family different. It's a call to kindness. It's a call to try to live out the fruit of the Spirit. So there's a personal conversion, an interpersonal conversion, and there's a conversion to be people of justice, to do justice, which you see show up in Micah and Amos. Jesus repeats some of these themes. Is that you need to be aware of the structure and the culture around us. Father John said it like this. Social action without prayer and conversion to the Lord lacks power and the ability to produce long-lasting change in the social economic conditions of the people. Likewise, prayer and evangelism without social action leads to a pietistic withdrawal from the realities of the human condition and an escape from social problems rather than a confrontation and challenge to change. And then it gets to Isaiah 58, this part that is one of my favorites. But before I get there, in Isaiah 6, it's Isaiah's conversion. It's part of Isaiah's testimony of this moment he has with God. And then in this moment with God in Isaiah 6, in this worship scene, God says, hey, I've got a mission. Who am I going to send on this mission? And Isaiah responds by saying, here am I. It's Isaiah. You can see him like raising his hand like, I don't know what this means, but I've had this encounter with God. So I am here. Whatever mission you got, send me on it. And listen to Isaiah 58, because here's what happens in verse 8 and 9. Because once God says, here's the kind of life I expect of you. Here's the fasting and what that fasting should lead you to. He says this, then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. And then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help. And God will say, here am I. So in Isaiah 6, it's a human's response of here am I. In Isaiah 58, God is the one responding with here am I. It is like a heart that is devoted and properly aligned to God and worshiping to God and understanding kind of fasting and sacrifice God has called you to. That when we honor that kind of worship, it awakens, it awakens God. Not that God was sleeping. But I think sometimes God is waiting on the people of God to wake up and to devote their lives to God. And when that happens, it gives God something to work with. Because when the human here am I meets the God's here am I, I think the voice of heaven is, watch out world. The church is going now. Their here am I is, is interlocked with God's here am I. And now there is work that's going to be done in worship. And the way we approach God and the way we pray, I think we want God to say yes to a lot of what we do. But in worship, God wants us to say yes to what God wants to do too. It's us saying yes to God and it's God saying yes to us. And then you get this. Like who doesn't want what happens through 9 through 12 in Isaiah 58? God says this. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And here's verse 12. I love this. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. 
Who doesn't want to be a part of something like that? Because I think what's possible is for us to be consistently moral, yet to be spiritually shallow. For us to have some of the morals right, to live a life where we're nice and we're kind and we don't do bad things, but not to have a heart that is aligned with God's intentions and motives and mission in the world. And the call of the church isn't just to be consistently moral, it's to be spiritually deep, committed to God. Thomas Merton says this, He who attempts to act and do things for others or for the world without deepening his own self-understanding, freedom, integrity, and capacity to love will not have anything to give others. He will communicate to them nothing but the contagion of his own obsessions, his aggressiveness, his ego-centered ambitions, his delusions about ends and means, his doctrinaire prejudices and ideas. So Isaiah 58 ends with this. Verse 13 and 14. God, this is the voice of God. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, And from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A few weeks ago I talked just for a moment about International Justice Mission, IJM. This is a group I'd heard about some and Casey got involved with them when we lived down in Houston. It's a human rights agency. Their work is to secure justice for victims of slavery, victims of sexual exploitation, victims of uh, extreme violence. It's an agency that's spread out over the world with hundreds of employees who were lawyers, investigators, prosecutors, uh, social workers, and they work tirelessly to rescue victims, to prosecute perpetrators, and to promote functioning justice systems throughout the world. Gary Haugen is the one who leads them. It was his dream to start IJM years ago, back in the late 90s. He used to work for the United States Department of, of Justice. And when he started IJM, he launched and it began to grow quickly. And as IJM grew, uh, Gary Haugen took a short sabbatical to get alone with God, just to wait before God. Look, here's what this organization is. Is this what you want this organization to be? And he believed God gave him one phrase in that time of sabbatical. And the phrase was, don't be caught up in prayerless striving. Like, don't get so caught up in working for justice around the world and helping people know Jesus, but yet there is prayerless striving. So at that time, Gary Haugen implemented a policy with IJM, which still exists today, is that every day, every employee comes into the office, no matter where they are stationed, and they are paid to come in and spend 30 minutes with God before they do their work. Like an alarm goes off, and when it happens, people are called into God. They may read the Psalms together, they have intentional ways to pray, but there's no cell phone activity and there's no emails And you're talking to people who are tirelessly engaged in helping people come out of all forms of slavery around the world. And there's so many things for them to do. But they believe as an organization that we can't do any of this for the long term if we aren't rooted in the heart of God. 
And Gary Haugen said this. He said, I felt we needed a way of releasing what was cluttering our hands. And he made this statement, and I want this to call us into prayer and hopefully to action this week. He said this. We needed more of God's power, but we needed to be more spiritually prepared to receive it. And I think we could say the same thing today. We want to be more aware of God's presence and his power. But there is a responsibility upon us to be spiritually prepared to receive it. So may those who have ears to hear, let them hear today. I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, will you go to the places where you're stationed throughout this room, if there's anything we can do for you, a prayer we can pray, a blessing we can speak over you, any way we can receive you, this is a moment for you. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.